0: Welcome to episode five of Talk Paper Scissors. Today's episode is one of my favorite things to talk about, which is the world of branding and specifically the evolution of branding. So really, branding has evolved significantly since the first ever brand was registered in the United States almost 150 years ago. And for any trivia buffs out there, that very first brand was Bass & Co Beer. Now... Back then, a brand represented a promise, and it continues to do so, however, with many additional complex layers of psychology stacked high. As humans, we have developed the unique ability to create meaning from the seemingly meaningless world around us. And this is exactly what Debbie Millman, who is a foremost expert on branding, and I'll get to her in just a sec, it's what she believes branding to be. Which is to say that branding is simply manufactured meaning. I'll say that again. Branding is simply manufactured meaning. Brands and the associations we have with those brands come from human brains. They don't exist in the natural world. And strong design is the communication of that manufactured meaning. So how have brands evolved from the very first registered brand on January 1st, 1876, allowing a brand to exist as its own legal entity, which is exactly what happened on that day? Well, it's time to turn to the work of that acclaimed branding expert I just mentioned, Debbie Millman, who is an authority in the history of branding and really how it's evolved in the age of social networking. She is the co-founder of the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. She's authored several books on branding, and she's also acted as the president of the design division at Sterling Brands, where she personally has worked on the redesign of over 200 global brands. Now, Millman has identified five waves of the brand evolution from 1876 to today, and she believes that there's been a radical shift, specifically in the last three years, which I'll speak to as well. So without further ado, let's get into the evolution of branding. Wave number one, 1876 to about 1920. Now, Debbie Millman doesn't have a specific name for this era or what she calls it. I'm going to call it the recognition era, and here's why. So radio at the time was the primary marketing medium. And brands, as they existed during this time period, in really the infancy of branding, again, uh, brands being their own legal entity, brand names were tied to individuals. So for example, Mr. Kellogg, that was he was a real guy. So brands represented consistency, they represented familiarity and they represented trust. So they also provided uh, a quality guarantee and an expected level of product safety. Coca-Cola and Campbell's Soup, in addition to Kellogg's, were some of the leaders at this time. Wave number two, about from 1920 to 1965. And again, uh, Debbie Millman hasn't given this, hasn't given any of these waves or these eras names, but I'm giving it a name and I'm gonna call it the copycat era. So during this era, black and white televisions were introduced. And something very interesting happened during this phase, which is to say that this was the anthropomorphic stage of brands. So what that means is that brands and brand owners began using human characteristics to create a new level of connection between consumers and their beloved brands. The reason they had to do this is because that there was really no difference between one product from another. So there were lots of copycat products that were born to try and achieve the successes of the original products. So by attaching human forms and human figures to otherwise inanimate objects, really what these brand owners were trying to do was to forge relationships with consumers. Classic examples during this phase, during this era, Uncle Ben and betty crocker so they are examples of fictitious human forms and i'm sorry to tell you but they are actually not real people Uh, fictitious human forms really to sell a product to establish that emotional connection with consumers to sell more wave number three is from approximately 1965 to approximately 1985 and i'm calling this the status era so television uh, was, has been around for uh, a few decades at this point. And during this wave, brands became self-expressive statements. So they mean something when someone wears a specific brand or drives a specific brand. They mean something about the person who uses that brand or society believes that it means something. Now, a brand in this era, in this wave, could provide status. Who you wanted to appear to as others. Branding essentially turned into belonging. So we're still seeing that kind of that thread of connection, trying to connect with consumers that we saw in wave number two. But this time it's through the tribes that people are starting to create and associate with and disassociate with by choosing one brand over another. So branding turning into belonging. Big brands during this wave, we've got Levi's, Nike, Volkswagen. These are all examples of brands that became self-expressive statements during the status era. Wave number four, 1985 to about the year 2000. And I'm calling this the experiential era. Now televisions at this point were really integrated into most family homes. And what's unique about this era as well is that cell phones came to market brands in this wave uh, can be categorized as creating an emotional experience for the consumer that really enabled them to feel different from everyone else feel special if you will disney starbucks apple all examples of brands that were experiential during this time and that really helped uh, again they created a connection with their consumers to make them feel different, unique, special. And this is something that really hadn't been done up until this point, making the consumer feel like an individual, feel like they're special, they're different from and well, really, and above their counterparts. Wave number five, the year 2000 to about the year 2017. And I'm calling this the connection era. Now, up until this point, brands have really been controlled from the top down. So they've been controlled by the corporations who've shaped them and pushed them down to consumers. But we see a transition during this era. Now, from about the year 2001 to 2004, there's something that Debbie Millman explains as an iPod isolation. And she says this occurred where the user now had complete control over the product, an iPod, and could customize it however they saw fit. They had complete control over their entertainment, which is something that had never happened up until this point. And truthfully, some experts were actually fearful that we were living in our own bubbles to our our own detriment. So this iPod isolation, this idea that we were we were trapped in our own heads almost, and that that increasing isolation was not good for our brains. Our brains are happiest when we are uh, when we are with others, when we are connecting with other humans. So there were some experts who were quite concerned during this this iPod isolation. But then enter the hero, the social network. So when social networking came along, it obviously has changed the digital world forever because it's both democratized brands so that they now exist in the hands of the people instead of only by companies. But also, they have facilitated connections through the isolation of our devices. So social networking, for all of its faux pas, it really kind of solved two problems. It, again, democratized brands so that they didn't just exist in the hands of companies, pushing down whatever message they wanted to push on to consumers. It's now much more of a bottom-up um, hierarchy or, or, I guess, flattening, as it were, but it also facilitated that connection through the isolation of our individual devices. Social network sites like Facebook or Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, name a few others, exploded and as the way we connect with others has completely changed in the last not that many years. So connection was during this era and still remains king. It remains the most important attribute of this wave now the psychological aspects of social networking are really absolutely fascinating and i am by no means a psychologist but this these questions really do interest me as they relate to branding and design so why do we connect online and really what motivates our desires to connect based on the theories the networking theories of uh, researcher charles Kadushin, The psychological foundations of social networks are derived from two basic human motivations. Number one is to feel safe, and number two is to reach out. So online social networks that are dense, a high number of ties within that network relative to all those that are possible, are really seen as highly safe networks because they provide social support and a sense of trust for the individual connected within this network. Now, furthermore, reaching out helps our overwhelming emotional need to feel connected. We are the only species on the planet who demonstrates this connection to others, to our, uh, to our own kind, to humans, through symbols and through brands. So clothing brands, wedding bands, tattoos, Nike shoes, all of these things help us demonstrate how we are connected to others and who we are connected to, who is part of our tribe. Given the choice, a baby will actually choose the connection to their mother over food. Crazy. We feel happiest when we have secure attachment to others. And marketers really are working to capitalize on this psychological phenomenon. So that being said, really, Many of us who have, who have problems with our phones in, in the sense that we perhaps look at them too much or too many times in a given day, it's not really that we're addicted to our phones. Instead, we're addicted to the feelings of connection that we experience with the help of our phones. We are living in an information era where we have so much opportunity, and some would say too much opportunity, to connect with one another, but the quality and authenticity of these connections are often lacking. So in a time when network savvy individuals have the capability and the desire to connect, marketers have the perfect opportunity to be human or recruit humans with lots of existing connections and more on that in a second, to reach out to consumers through social platforms. So again, in a time when network savvy people like us have the ability to connect, and have the desire to connect, marketers really have this perfect storm, this perfect opportunity to capitalize on this desire. And they do so through, in many cases now, uh, through recruiting humans with lots of connections to help them do that. There's a term for this type of branding and it's called limbic branding, L-I-M-B-I-C, limbic branding. It's a neuromarketing oriented approach to branding, meaning that it refers to the limbic part of our brain. So the part of the brain that controls basic emotions and basic drives. So the question then becomes how do marketers leverage this knowledge of our motivations to connect online, to sell products and services, to connection hungry consumers in the information age. So how do they take what they know about our human psychology and our need to connect to sell products? And that leads us to today, what I'm calling the Influencer Era. Wave number six, 2017 to now, the Influencer Era. Now, Debbie Millman argues that branding has changed really dramatically in the last three years, since about 2017. Then, I mean, more so than ever before in history. Branding has become democratized, even more so than ever. And Millman states that brands can be created by anyone and can be shared by everyone. And that's huge. Brands are now created by the people, for the people. And this has helped usher in the idea that brands can be movements. So, for example, powerful movements like Black Lives Matter, hashtag Me Too. So Debbie Millman describes this phenomenon like this. Branding is now a profound manifestation of the human spirit. She sees branding as now having the ability to further humanity, to make things, and to mark things for a better world. I would like to add to that, that in today's world of connected brands that are for the people, by the people, the world of the influencer plays such a huge role in marketing. Influencers on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter are tuned into by loyal followers for product and service recommendations. And according to the Digital Marketing Institute Online, 70% of teens trust influencers more than traditional celebrities. So why does it work so well? In one word, trust. Trust is the backbone of all strong brands, and followers often see their lives paralleled in the lives of these individuals that they follow. So like traditional marketing muses dreamed up by marketing departments in a lot of different companies and a lot of industries, not every single customer will be exactly like the muse they've created, but every customer desires or wants to be like the muse in some way. I'll say that again. Not every single customer will be exactly like the muse that these marketing departments have created as their ideal customers. But every customer desires or wants to be like that muse in some way. I believe this is the same phenomenon that's happening with influencers online. So not every follower is exactly like each of the influencers they follow. How could they be? But every follower sees a part of themselves represented within the influencer. This forges connection, which leads to trust, which could lead to strong feelings of association with the products and the services that they promote. Furthermore, the Digital Marketing Institute states that 86% of women, a whopping 86% of women surveyed, use social media for purchasing advice, with nearly half having purchased a product directly as a result of an influencer. Now, just a few years ago, influencer marketing was not nearly as powerful or as pervasive as it is today. Now, more than three quarters of women are willingly and often turning to a marketing channel to make purchasing decisions, and they're being powerfully swayed by influencers. So with each new wave in their evolution, brands have accumulated the worth and the meaning thrust upon them in each of the previous eras. Really now, brands are more complex and meaningful today than ever before in history, as each of us aim to live out our individuality in the brand choices we make, whether we realize it or not. And after all, deciding not to choose one brand over another or choosing no brand at all is really just as much of a choice. So to end today's episode, here's a quote from The Office episode entitled Women's Appreciation in Season 3. So here, uptight accounting professional Angela talks about having to make difficult decisions when it comes to her favorite clothing brands. <clears throat> Sometimes the clothes at Gap Kids are too flashy, so I'm forced to go to the American Girl's store and order clothes for large colonial dolls. <laughs> so what will the future of branding look like in 2020 and beyond? How will our devices and social networks, both online and offline, continue to shift our understanding of and our interaction with brands? Well, I guess we'll soon find out. And there you have it. Another episode is in the books. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I look forward to the next time we get to talk paper scissors.